So today I am going out and trying to find people to interview, um, and I'm feeling a little bit nervous. How does one find people who are nearing the end of their life and who actually want to talk about it? Um, one thing I, I'm doing, I'm actually going to distribute flyers. Yeah, those flyers that uh, you usually see for babysitters with a tear-off on the bottom, um, or if you're looking for yard work, but I'm going to post flyers for my podcast and see if anyone is interested. All right, well, here I go. get into where I went and what happened, I have to tell you that since the last episode, I've had a lot of ups and downs. When I've told people what I'm doing, people will either say, that's really interesting, or whoa, that's really heavy. And then others... While they won't say it directly to me, will ask my mom, why would she ever want to do that? I thought I could tell people about my podcast, put up a website, connect with organizations, and then I'd have at least a dozen people to interview. Boy, was I wrong. I mean, I know that people don't talk about death and dying like they do the weather, but I suppose I didn't quite realize how protected of a subject it really is. I started to question myself. Is this topic too big, or just too sad, or maybe even too difficult? I even started to feel a little panicky at times. The more I explore it, the more I think about my own eventual death. And that scares me. But unlike people who are actually dying, I can take a break. I can't even imagine how someone who is dying must be feeling. They don't get a break. Uh, Maybe death and dying are just too sensitive of topics to explore. You know, if I were dying, I certainly wouldn't want people to, like, think of me as, like, sensitive. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like like a sensitive topic, (laughs) you know, like just talking to me. Right, like tiptoeing around. Yeah, it's, it's really, like... You're still alive. Like, you probably do want to, you know, maybe, maybe not, but like, you probably want to talk to people and. (laughs) Yeah. That's my husband, Eric. He has strong opinions about everything. And that's one of the things I love about him. Whenever I'm having doubts about something, I like to talk to him. He doesn't always say exactly what I want to hear, but he does always ground me and challenges me in a really good way. He encourages me even when something seems too hard. It's got me questioning 
myself and just thinking like, oh, well, I feel like I need to make sure that everything I say is sensitive enough. But I think that's part of why so many of us are afraid to talk about death and dying with people because we're afraid of saying the wrong thing, including myself. But that doesn't really seem like we should not say anything at all. Not say anything at all. Do you ever do that? When something feels so uncomfortable, you choose to remain silent rather than risk stumbling and falling. I know I do. And maybe that's okay. Maybe silence gives some of us time to process until we're ready to explore that hard topic that we're trying to avoid. Or maybe we just risk overthinking it entirely. Like I can't overthink it too much or else... I'll just be debilitated. Like I want to be sensitive yeah. and I want to be compassionate and, and I'm open-minded. Sure you, will be. you just have to approach it from your own level of like your own understanding of it. And that's the only honest way to do it. You can't like try to think like some people will, you know, this will be too intense for them and they, you know, they just won't listen. But that's a big part of why I'm doing it is to help yeah. break down any sort of stigma or discomfort around talking about death, but maybe it's just always going to be a little uncomfortable and that's okay. It will probably always be a little uncomfortable, but throughout this podcast, I'm going to attempt to roll with that discomfort. I hope you'll bear with me as I stumble, fall, and sound awkward at times. And I do have to say, my day putting up flyers looking for people to interview was a bit Awkward. First stop is a coffee shop. I know that sounds kind of weird, but I know that if I had six months or less left to live and I still had the energy, I'd definitely want a good cup of coffee. So I was just wondering if I could put up one of these flyers, um, just what the process is for that. Okay, just put it up there. Stick it on that wall. Okay, great. And there's little like taxes. Okay, all right. And I think I also want a sunshine bun. Anything else? That's it. I couldn't stop at a coffee shop and not get a sunshine bun. Of course, I made the rookie mistake of turning off my recorder before the barista asked me what my podcast was about. She was a sweet, enthusiastic college student who was majoring in psychology. Her response when I told her what I was doing Oh, awesome. I would totally listen to that. Was encouraging. So I continued on. I took my flyers to the public library and I stood staring at the completely full bulletin board, wondering if I should put my flyer over the harp lessons poster or the karate lessons poster. I also went to a grocery store where I met a Zen Buddhist monk who also happens to do spiritual work with people who are dying. It was a very strange coincidence. My last stop was at the hospital. I felt really weird walking into a hospital with a flyer that read, Do you know someone who is dying? It felt like I was intruding. A hospital is normally a beacon of hope for people. It's a place where people go to get cured, treated, or fixed. 
not to think about death. I couldn't put up the flyer anyway due to their policies, but I'm glad I didn't have to decide whether I should or not because I felt really unsettled about the whole thing. be one place where talking about death and dying was normal, where people with six months or less to live would be interested in a conversation for this podcast. But what I've learned is that it's just not that simple. Uh, Hospice is really a philosophy of care. It's about uh, providing comfort for people at the end of life, people that uh, it has been determined have six months or less to live. Uh, by two different doctors. That doesn't mean that they will necessarily live six months, and it doesn't mean that they won't live more than six months. It just means that they have a terminal diagnosis of some sort where two different physicians believe that it's likely that they have six months or less to live. That's my friend and old co-worker Lisa Stewart. She's the manager at a hospice serving Seattle and the surrounding area. She's been having end-of-life conversations with people for just about a decade. When Lisa and I both worked at a cancer information service, some people that we talked to thought hospice was just a place that you go to die, and that maybe, if you didn't sign up, you would have a better chance of living. There is a reality to the fact that hospice is about a place or a a place of being or a state of mind or a state of body where you are coming to the end of life, of course. Uh, But it's, um, it's also about how you live that last part of your life. And what a beautiful thing to be able to think about how you want to live the last part of your life and have a supportive team of people that can help you craft your time in the way you want. But in the end, it's still the end for a lot of people. It's a big step to decide that you're going to go on to hospice because it's an acknowledgement that your life is, is potentially coming to an end. But that's something that is happening for all of us every day, all the time. We just don't talk about it very much in our culture. And even if you're highly attuned and and insightful or aware of that, or you've done work around that, it still is a big step to acknowledge that your, your life is in a place where hospice might be appropriate and might be really helpful to you because people are holding living and dying at the same time within themselves. And it can be very difficult to accept that you're coming closer to the end of life and trying to figure out how to still live during that time. Yeah, definitely. And that's why it's been a little hard trying to find people to interview because You know, even with people, I mean, most of us probably know through our circle of community, someone who has six months or less left to live. I mean, I feel like at any given time, you could probably ask someone who knows someone who knows someone who is um, 
has six months or less. And yeah, it's really hard, I think, for people to even ask those people if they want to be interviewed for this podcast. And that's why it's been really hard. And I've been trying to explore um, why that is. I mean, I think intellectually I can understand, but just trying to figure out what is it, what's the harm in asking someone? And I, I mean, what I'm learning is, well, it is kind of like then you're acknowledging with that person that there is this potential of six months or less. So it's the acknowledgement. And then it's also partially um, just the fact that some people just want to keep holding hope, you know, keep holding, well, I'm going to keep pursuing treatment. And the hope is that I live longer than that. So once you mention there's this podcast where you six months or less, and it's kind of like interfering with that hope. And it's really hard to like grapple with the whole, like you can still have hope, but also acknowledge what's happening. And it's, that's why it's been very tricky. This podcast. Yeah. And you, you know, from the work that you have done and having many end of life conversations, as do I, that it's, it's, it's about changing what you hope for, not giving up hope. But that is a very hard emotional and psychological adjustment for people. And if I may give an example from my own personal experience, my mom who was well-versed in understanding hospice and, you know, has me as a kid and was a social work professor herself as she was battling cancer um, and a terminal cancer. And it was getting worse. Even two weeks before she died, she said, I'm not ready for hospice. Yeah, and I I often think myself um, all day, every day, you know, that I'm working, I work hospice. I'm thinking about this all the time. And I wonder what I'll be like as I'm trying to grapple with that, if I have the opportunity to grapple with that. What do you think you would do if your doctor told you that you have six months or less to live? Would you choose to focus on comfort and enter hospice? Or would you pursue aggressive treatment to the bitter end, knowing there was little chance it would change anything? We probably all have a sense of what we think we would want, but if or when that time comes, we may decide differently. Or we may not even have the capacity to decide. She went into the hospital uh, and she was released on hospice for five days. That's it. And she was uh, in a place where she was no longer able to really make decisions and only wasn't communicating very coherently. And um, yeah, that's how it happened. So then did you have to make the decision then for her at the time that it was time for her to be on hospice? Uh, my stepfather made the decision, fortunately. Uh, I mean, I would have been happy to. I would have probably liked to make it earlier for her, although as her daughter, it was also 
as much as I know, there was still a part of me that was in denial because I didn't want to believe that my mom, who was only 65, was really going to to die. And, um, and so that decision was made, fortunately, and uh, we were able to bring her home and my brother, my sister-in-law, my stepfather and I were able to be there with her for those five days and have some of her close friends there and things like that. But it was, um, I would have liked for her to have more of the support and comfort prior to that, but that was not something that I don't think she could do that. I think her coping was about, she was living every moment knowing that things were changing and things were not good, but still needed to put so much focus on living that she couldn't accept that she was ready for hospice. And that's someone who knows a lot about it, right? And who talked about it with me, who who works hospice. So it's just a, it's a real challenge for people to, I'm always amazed when people do open their door to us. I think, I think what we do is a privilege and I'm so grateful we're able to do it, but I understand how hard it is to accept that that's what's happening. Oh, right. So hard. And yeah, even if intellectually, you know, that hospice can be a benefit or, you know that the doctors have said that really nothing else can be done in terms of active treatment. It's just so hard to grapple with that and accept it emotionally that that is a reality and make decisions based on that. And I mean, even with your mom, do you feel like it was probably easier for her and maybe easier for you for someone else to make the decision, all right, it's time for hospice because she could no longer make that decision herself. I think that I don't know that it was easier for me because I would have preferred to make that decision or help her to make that decision earlier. Uh, but I think it's the way that she had to do it. And everyone has their own way, you know, of, of grappling with end of life. Everyone has their own way. And everyone has their own way of making decisions. How do you usually make decisions? Do you like to do a lot of research and consider all your options and then make a decision only after you've spent a great deal of time thinking about it? Or do you get overwhelmed by a lot of options, like decision fatigue, and prefer to make decisions quickly? Or even better yet, have someone else make the decision for you? However you make decisions now will likely influence how you make decisions about your end-of-life care. I was curious about this with hospice, so I decided to ask Lisa when people tend to make the decision to enter hospice. I think that really depends. Um, many times people don't come on till the very end where they're extremely symptomatic and uh, very similar to to my mom. 
as I shared with you, that kind of thing. Sometimes people come on and there's less than 24 hours that they are still living. Uh, sometimes people come on when they are still functioning quite well, but they know they have a terminal diagnosis and they may be on, you know, again, as I mentioned, a person can can continue on hospice if they li- live more than six months. And sometimes people are declining very slowly based on what their terminal illness is. And they are, because they're getting comfort, care, and their quality of life is better, it is sometimes extending their life longer. They're still declining. And, you know, there's criteria that have to be met that are reviewed all the time because, you know, we're a Medicare-funded program and we really want to be ethical and do this correctly. Every hospice does. So there, there's always, things are constantly reviewed, but some people just have a longer decline. So they may be on hospice quite a bit longer and some people are able to accept and come on earlier. It just really depends on that person and their dynamics or that person's family who may be, uh, maybe the person is no longer decisional but their family members are and they're making those decisions. So it's it's really the gamut, runs the gamut. I think in hospice, we would all hope that people are able to come on sooner rather than later because there's more that we can do for them and they can have a higher quality of life. But that said, I absolutely understand the struggle of making that decision. And Whenever people make it, if they do make it, is okay. So some people may never make the decision to enter hospice and may instead end up dying in a hospital bed. Or they may no longer be decisional and a family member makes the decision to enter a hospice for them. But what I also really wanted to know was for the people who choose hospice and choose it early, do they even want to talk about death and dying? I think each person talks about it in their own way. So depending on who the person is and how they're experiencing their own um, end of life journey, they may want to talk to one of our chaplains. They may want to talk to a social worker. They may just want to talk to the nurse about the symptoms that they're having and not want to talk about coming to end of life. Um, So it really, it really depends on that individual. Some people, again, are really struggling with what their goals of care are. They're on hospice, which means that they're no longer receiving active treatment, yet their goals of care or their family's goals of care for them seem to be more about still trying to recover. Um, And so we'll have a lot of conversations with them or try to help them determine what they really want. Um, And if they do want something different than comfort care, you know, they, they could choose to come off service and pursue something else. And yet we have some people that come to us who are very accepting and are ready. And some people who are like, why hasn't this happened yet? I'm very ready. 
And that's, you know, another end of the spectrum. People who want to release, want to die, and uh, haven't yet. Often they're people that are uh, very old and, you know, they've lost everyone and they're just ready. Sometimes they could be younger as well. It just really depends. And um, sometimes people choose, you know, in in Washington State, we have physician-assisted death or death with dignity. And, um, you know, that's a choice that they can make if they're on hospice as well. Yeah, I think one thing that I've been trying to grapple with with this podcast is just trying to figure out if people who are nearing the end of their life, if they generally don't really want to talk about it, or it's really hard to talk about, or if the rest of us have a hard time asking about it. And so it's this conversation that ends up potentially not happening because the people around the person who is dying are afraid to bring up the conversation when really the person who is dying would love someone to ask. Um, So I just really don't know. And do you have a sense of that at all? All of the above. All those things are happening and it's different for each person. So really because death is the great equalizer. As far as we know, this is it. I mean, I know that's other people have many belief systems and they may have a different experience of that. But this plane of existence is coming to an end. And so death is the great equalizer. And so every sort of person, um, if we're if if my work in hospice is to support people at the end of life, then we are open to whatever kind of person might open their door to us that has that need, which means that you have people that are processing and experiencing things in all different ways and are coming from different cultural um, backgrounds and belief systems. And so consequently, all those different things are happening. Sometimes the person is very ready and willing and able to talk about it and their loved ones are not able to accept that. And so they are wanting all these other things, uh, more treatments. And it's, you know, often people do things for people that they love. And so sometimes that person coming to an end of life may have pushed through even more treatment and things at the urging of their loved ones. Sometimes it's the person themselves that just, for whatever reason, maybe having a lot of existential angst, maybe working through things that they can't, can't release uh, about experiences they've had throughout their life, makes it a lot harder to accept that this is what's happening and sometimes they don't want to talk about it sometimes families don't want us to use the word hospice with their loved ones even though the loved one very clearly knows what's going on or sometimes they don't so I think it's I it's really hard for me to generalize about that because 
each person's situation is their own unique situation. And I see all of those things that you're talking about. But bigger picture, our culture here in in the United States is one where we might watch television or movies and see a lot of gratuitous violence and death and things like that. But it's it's surreal. It's not real. And even if a person has lost someone that they love uh, who or has been to a funeral or has even been with someone as they're dying, um, most people don't have a lot of experience with that. Um, and if they've had that experience, it may be a very profound experience that moves them one way or another. It may indicate to them that they're not as comfortable. They don't want to think about it or talk about it or they want to push it away or it's scary. People don't know what to do. I did have the experience of watching my grandfather die. And at times, my family didn't know what to do or what to say. But for me, it was also profound. And I have to admit, funny at times. While alive, my grandfather was a very loyal person, very dedicated to his family, and was able to privately endure a lot of stress. To give you an idea, toward the end of her life, my grandmother developed dementia, and because we all lived far away, we didn't really know how bad it was. We depended on my grandfather to give us updates, and rather than sharing how severe it was and reaching out for help, my grandfather quietly took care of her at home. My grandmother was paranoid. She would pace the house, thinking my grandfather was stealing from her. Obviously, this isn't funny at all, but it shows how my grandfather never wanted to give up. He was the same way when he was dying. Hospice kept telling us to come down because they thought he was going to die, but then he didn't. And then they'd tell us again, okay, come down, today is the day he is going to die. And then he didn't. Eventually, after he had outlived the typical prognosis for someone who is no longer able to ingest food or water, Hospice told her family that we each needed to say our goodbyes, and then he would likely feel comfortable letting go and dying. We each had our heartfelt goodbyes, but then he just wouldn't die. Grandpa, just die already. He didn't end up dying for several more days. Talk about an awkward second goodbye. So as you can tell, finding people to interview with six months or less to live is not as simple as I had originally thought. Even though death is the great equalizer, we all have different feelings about how or if we want to talk about it. I was curious about whether Lisa had other suggestions about how to find people to interview. Another way might be, you know, we're at the point in our lives, you're a little younger than me, of course, but we're grandparents and people's parents are coming to end of life or dealing with decline. And so maybe folks that you know in those ways would be more receptive because you, I mean, I think you would approach it in such a thoughtful and sensitive way that there may be more willingness that way. 
that's exactly what ended up happening. My best friend Kendra called me to tell me that her grandfather was just diagnosed with 6 to 12 months, and that she thinks he'd be a good person to interview for this podcast. Hear that conversation in the next episode.